Thanks, Kyle. Good morning, Keystone. Glad to have you join us here. We are in uh, what is essentially the, the third message, but technically the second, uh, in a series that Pastor Kyle and I are calling Fight for Joy. And in it, uh, we are transitioning out of the, the sermon series that Pastor Keith started back in December on proclaiming the excellencies of God, and now moving into what Peter would have said in the first week in January, to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our souls. And so we're following in some ways, the church history guide of the seven deadly sins. Last week, as Kyle mentioned, we talked about greed, defining greed as this excessive desire, this inordinate desire, this disordered love for money and all of the things that money can buy. And one of the things I said about money is that it can disguise itself. When you get bit by greed, it blinds you to not be able to see, or it can, be, it can hide behind maybe common virtues. So I said last week that you might say that you are just a hardworking, financially prudent man. And I said, that may very well be the case, but it's also possible that beneath that hard work can lurk the sin of greed. This morning, as we move into the second uh, of the seven deadly sins, I think it's a bit confusing that this one makes the list. Uh, This morning's uh, sin that we'll cover is actually anger. And as you think about anger, maybe you think, well, of course it should be on the list, Brandon. It's one of the seven deadly sins. And I want to consider with you why it might be a little peculiar. I've got two reasons. The first is this. Jesus gets angry. There are seven deadly sins. Jesus never sinned. And here we find in Matthew 3, 5, you can uh, read it. And Jesus looked around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. What are we supposed to do with a seven deadly sins knowing that Jesus never sinned and yet we also find that Jesus got angry? Uh, we might be able to remember, okay, Jesus is God. And when I read the Old Testament, I see God's anger burn for certain groups of people at certain groups of time. And if Jesus is God and God gets angry, it would make sense that Jesus gets angry. But how is it possible that Jesus can be angry and not be guilty of sin? What complicates it maybe even more is that not only does Jesus sin, but or does, <laughs> cross that, not only does Jesus get angry, But the Bible encourages us, perhaps even commands us, to do one of these seven deadly sins. It says, be angry. You won't find a verse in the Bible that says, be greedy and do not sin. And yet we find a verse here that says, be angry and do not sin. And it's, it's taken place in Ephesians where it falls in line with other sins that we might be more comfortable with. Verse 25 says, don't lie. Verse 28 uh, leads us to um, not get uh, angry so much as um, don't steal. Don't lie. Don't steal. In the middle, be angry. One of these things just doesn't seem to jive with the others. But if we just kept reading in Ephesians, this same chapter, we come across this passage where Paul is telling the same group of people, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Just five verses beforehand, Paul says to the church, be angry. 
And now he says, put away anger. What are we supposed to do with this concept that seven deadly sins are laid out before us? Peter tells us to abstain from these passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. And now we've got an example of Jesus and encouragement from the scriptures to be angry at the same time saying, put away all anger. With that kind of confusion, I want to pray for us before we begin uh, that God would use this time to help us get a handle on what greed is uh, and how we can fight against it uh, with a superior joy. So would you pray with me? Father, as I study your word, I'm reminded of my deficiencies, where I fall short of your standard and consider with David, who am I that you have shown me favor? Who am I that you would receive me into your kingdom? Who am I that you would have me share your word to a group of people when I am just as guilty as the rest. Father, I pray that the, the truth that you know us deeply, that you have searched and known us, you know when we sit down and when we stand up, you know our path, you are well acquainted with our ways, Lord, before there's even a word on our mouth, you know it. And I pray, Lord, that your supreme and infinite wisdom of all that there is would shape our hearts this morning as we receive your word. That we would take it into our hearts and our minds so that we would be transformed by it, so that we would be encouraged by it, so that we might be ones who respond to the word and not just hear the word. So guide us this morning to transform us to be more of the people that you have created us to be, citizens and ambassadors within your kingdom. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you want, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. This passage, like last week, dealing with greed, is part of what's commonly called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, God is uh, having Jesus proclaim the kingdom of God. We saw in Jesus' first words of ministry to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He gathered his disciples, began to preach and proclaim the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. And then he goes into this long sermon. That's where we pulled last week's message out of. It's where we're pulling this week's message. Matthew 5, verses 21 uh, through 26. I'll read it here and you can be following along. Jesus says, you have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say to you, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer 
and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. As we talk about anger this morning, we're going to look at a couple of different headings. Uh, First, I'll do what I see as the shape of anger. Uh, We'll move into the roots of anger. uh, Sorry, uh, shape of anger, warnings about anger, roots of anger, and then finally, our fight against anger. But if I asked you to draw a picture of what anger looked like, and kids, if you're... uh, Worshiping with us this morning, maybe you can do this. You can draw a picture. What does an angry person look like? I'm wondering what your picture of anger looks like. If you're struggling to maybe think of what it might look like, your uh, iPhone might give you some hints um, because we end up seeing a, a broad range, and I'll come back to that point, a broad range of expressions If you type into the search, anger, these are the four, uh, there's actually more, I I didn't include all of them, but I I feel like this is providing a broad range of expressions of anger. On the one hand, you you see the the snorts, he still has his angry eyes. Uh, All the way over to the other side, you see red-faced cursing, and we could say, okay, that's anger. If I could go back, I'm wondering if Jesus is helping us to see that anger has many expressions. It is broad in its approach. And what I mean by that is when he uses the expression, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he's using a grammatical expression that's intended to help us remember an old way of thinking and to consider a new way of thinking. He's saying, it used to be that you thought this, And what I'm going to reveal to you is I'm going to reveal there's something deeper behind that original command. We would all agree, you shall not murder. We can remember that's number six on the Ten Commandments. That's not a surprising facet of anger. What might be interesting is that Jesus says, but if you are angry, you are also liable for judgment. And so we've got a range now from murder the external expression of anger, all the way through insults and curses. If you called someone an idiot, if you called someone you fool, Jesus is saying these are getting lumped together in a way. And so that's why I think the the emojis look the way that they do. Apple knows there is a broad expression of what anger can look like. I drew two pictures, and I'll show them to you. I'm not a great artist, um, but if you look at the picture on the left, that's all right. You can, you can say, wow, Brandon, you've got some skill. Um, your picture on the left might look like your classic definition of anger. Okay, you've got your fists clenched, your, your jaws stiff shut. You've got obviously steam coming out of your ears, red in the face, angry eyes. Like you can picture it <laughs> over the holidays. Uh, uh, our family got together and... Um, it's a little bit more chaotic now that there's lots of nieces and nephews around and uh, we've got several nephews and one of them was the house early and the other was on his way and because he knew that his cousin was on his way, he wanted to hide. He wanted to surprise his nephew when his, or surprise his cousin when he came over. And so, you know, kids are awful at hiding. And so he hid and obviously his cousin spotted him right away. But something went haywire in my nephew's mind where it was not right. He started, he looked like this picture. He got red in the face. 
hands clenched, ready to like pound his cousin. And he just kept saying over and over again, it's not right. Why did he find me? Why did he find me? Sometimes that's what anger looks like. It looks like a kid having a temper tantrum. But maybe you know that anger can look a lot like that because you've experienced maybe the wrath of a physically violent man who might not have looked as cartoonish, but the same traits were there. Or maybe not someone who's physically attacked you, but verbally attacked you. We all may not have experienced being physically attacked, but we might know what it's like to be verbally attacked. The radioactive decay of those explosive outbursts of anger take a long time to dissipate, if ever. And so when you think of anger, you think of violence, you think of spewing words. And what I, want, what I think Jesus is helping us to see that anger is more than just whether you spew anger, but whether you stew in anger. And that's why I drew that second picture on the left. The second picture on the left might not look like our classic definition of what anger is. He's got his arms crossed, probably more with disgust or disdain. He's got his eyes rolled, whether he thinks that somebody's being ridiculous, whether he's thinking, you fool, you idiot. Or maybe because he's fantasizing, wondering what could I have said that would have really hurt that person if I was just smart enough in the moment to say it. He's stewing or fantasizing over what it might be like. He doesn't have the courage maybe to actually go forward and violently hurt somebody, but he wishes, what would it be like if that person was dead? We were in our prayer session before this meeting began and uh, we joked, ah, we don't have an issue with anger. And someone said, yeah, well, we, would just, we just bottle it up. We keep it inside. And that might be true in a lot of church folks. We understand that violent anger is wrong. It's sinful. And we think that we might have been able to conquer this passion of the flesh if we can just keep it inside. And Jesus is exposing that whether you spew or whether you stew, that Jesus wants to talk to us about that kind of anger. It's still a problem whether you keep it in or whether you let it out. Internal and external anger is on Jesus' radar screen. And so it should be in our crosshairs this morning. And that's why Jesus has a warning for us when it comes to anger. And the warning is this, you will be judged for your anger. Explosive, spewing anger or fuming, stewing anger. Three times, Jesus pulls us to draw out the idea that you will be judged for your anger. You are subject to judgment, he says. You are in danger of being brought before the court. You are in danger of the fires of hell. Those warnings make sense when it comes to murder for us. We understand that if we murder someone at any moment, Detective Jones can show up at our door, he can accuse us of murder, read us our rights, take us to jail, will be heard by a judge, and if the judge finds that we are guilty of that crime, we go to jail. All of that makes sense when it comes to murder. Jesus is saying the same thing can happen to you when it comes to anger. You are just as liable to judgment. An accuser can call you out for being angry. He can accuse you of anger take you before a judge. And if the judge finds that your anger is offensive, you will be punished for that kind of anger. 
Jesus says, when it comes to anger, what we need to do is deal with it quickly. And he says, so if you're sitting in church and you realize that someone is accusing you of anger, drop whatever you're doing and go deal with it quickly. Before you sing another worship song, if you realize that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of a kind of anger that has driven a wedge between you and someone else, and that someone else would have a cause or a claim against you for your anger, for how you have displayed it, and how it has broken the relationship, how your anger has made them angry and their angry has, anger has made you angry and we create this feuding situation where both sides are never going to find peace because we're not dealing with our anger. Jesus says, drop whatever you're doing and go deal with it. And so I want to pray for us just in this moment here that if you need to get up and head to the prayer room and spend time praying to God, trying to understand the anger that has divided you from someone else, that you can do that. Or if you need to go and leave uh, and deal with this anger, uh, I want to follow the scriptures. And so because there is uh, such a harsh warning to anger, Jesus says, so go deal with it quickly. So would you pray with me here? Father, we believe that you are a just judge, that you see and know all, and we confess that we've allowed anger to drive wedges between relationships, that there are grudges that we've been holding on to where both sides have rained insults, sought destruction. We have said things and we've done things in anger that have wounded our friends and family. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us, that we would see the broad range of our anger as not being more virtuous because we've restrained it and kept it inside. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength here to confess our anger, take responsibility for how it has sought to harm others. And we believe wholeheartedly that you have seen in the depths of our souls. You know the depravity, you know the sin, and yet you have chosen to show us grace and mercy instead of wrath. Father, free us to admit our dependence on your grace for our own sins and free us too from the burden of administering justice by seeking revenge on those who've sinned against us. Father, help us to trust your wise and just judgments so that we can show mercy to those who've harmed us. I pray that you'd free us from the kind of anger that's robbing us of the joy of being citizens in your kingdom. Father, accomplish that work for us in Jesus' name. Amen. I really want Jesus' words to be a sober warning because when I look back on the past year, I don't know if our generation is more angry or less angry than other generations, but it seems like there's more of an opportunity for everyday people to vent that anger. You look at social media. In fact, this is one of the things that I, I saw when I watched the documentary, The Social Dilemma is that the things that end up capturing our attention and keeping our attention are often the, the snippets or sound bites that stir up anger in us. And when it's easier than ever before to in some ways feel justified in letting the world know that we don't think something's right and to 
express that anger. Now, obviously, on the internet, you're not going to use fisticuffs to solve any problems, to vent your anger. But there's a kind of moral posturing, a kind of moral superiority or intellectual superiority that points a finger at other people and says, I know better than you. And that kind of self-promoting grandstanding, that passive-aggressive posturing, the kind of disgust or the kind of disdain, the kind of sarcasm, the kind of cynical comments that I see flooded online, it was too much for me to handle probably about halfway through 2020. I just couldn't, because it was making me angry. Seeing other people angry there were making me angry. And so I had to cut off listening to uh, the news. I had to cut off listening to the radio, uh, even certain podcasts. I needed to stop listening. I found that it was making me angry. And there was a part of me that actually thought that I was justified in my anger because I could look down on someone else. And it felt, I can see the allure of anger because it makes you feel better than other people when you can show them why they're wrong. When you can point out that you are better than them. It's a release. Sometimes we call it, I just need to vent some anger as if anger was some sort of fluid inside of you that builds up, builds up until it bursts out your ears. Jesus has a warning for us as we look back on our anger in 2020. (laughs) uh, There's no magic in the year. And so as we think about the kinds of things that might make us angry in 2021, Jesus is saying to a warning to us, you will be judged on your anger. Now, what's interesting about the judgment is, is that not all anger is sinful. We saw that earlier. It's possible for Jesus to be angry and not sin. And the scriptures seem to indicate that it's possible for us to be angry and not sin. And so we've got to create some categories of maybe righteous anger like Jesus, like God, justified anger, and sinful anger. Anger that would cause us to worry that the judge is going to throw us into jail, condemn us to judgment because we have not treated anger properly. And there was a philosopher who said, it's easy to be angry and maybe to think that your anger is righteous. What's more difficult is knowing when to be angry, who to be angry with, how much to be angry. That's a lot more difficult for us. And so I need to move us beyond uh, just the warning about anger to help us consider what is going to be the thing that decides whether it's righteous or sinful. It's not a matter of whether you are angry. It might be, why are you angry? So let's look at some of the roots of anger. And to do so, I want to share maybe two case studies. And we'll look at Jesus as an example. And as we read the scriptures, I want you to be thinking, what's triggering anger in Jesus? And then in a second, what's triggering anger in Jonah? So the passage that I read earlier in Mark uh, 3 through 5, this is the full section Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. 
Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. And so Jesus looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. So if you needed to answer the question, what triggered Jesus here to his anger? What was the cause? Why was Jesus angry here? We might be able to consider the fact that Jesus wanted to heal this man and the Pharisees wanted to accuse Jesus. In Jesus' eyes, something was wrong with this situation. What the Pharisees were trying to do was unacceptable to him. Jesus is perceiving that something's not right. This is not just. This man should be healed, Sabbath or not. And the fact that the Pharisees cared more about trapping Jesus than caring for this man meant that Jesus responded actually with two emotions there. You can see it in anger and in sadness. He was grieved and he was anger, angry. Now hold that in your mind. What, what caused Jesus to be angry here? And let's look at another situation with Jonah. Uh, Jonah is, is a story maybe you've heard growing up. It's one of our classic kids stories because uh, it's got a, a giant fish. Uh, it, it imagines three days in the belly of the whale uh, or big fish, depending upon your uh, children's Bible translation. And what the story is, is that God tasks this man, Jonah, to be his ambassador to an evil empire. He wants Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was an evil, wicked empire, and Nineveh was its capital. You can picture maybe the Hunger Games, what the the people in the capital were like, bloodthirsty, violent, evil, wicked people. And when God tasked Jonah to go speak a message of hope, a message of repentance to the people in Nineveh, Jonah didn't want to go. And that's why he ran. That's why he got swallowed by the bees. That's why he got spit up and then reluctantly went and preached a message. Why? He didn't want God to be gracious to this evil empire. And so when we get to the end of chapter three, it's, it's, it's short. And I'd encourage you, if you want to, it's just four chapters. Go home, read it. It's a good case study in anger, more than just this. But in verse 10 of chapter three, We hear, when God saw what they, the Ninevites, had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, God changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. Verse 1, this. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. And he became angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. You were eager to turn back from destroying people. What triggered Jonah's anger in this moment? Like Jesus, he saw something he didn't like. He didn't like what had happened. For Jesus, it was directed towards the Pharisees. In Jonah's case, it was directed towards God. But Jonah's making the moral decision, the judgment that what has just taken place is not right. It's not fair. Both Jesus and Jonah 
are in some ways perceiving that an injustice has taken place, and I understand that because we love justice. God has made us like himself. God loves justice. I'm getting into my points. Our anger is rooted in our love for justice. That there's a part of us that craves for things to be like God created them to be to not see injustice. And when we see an injustice or something that wells up in us, that feeling that it's not right in some ways is an expression of anger. You can see how it can be a virtuous thing. Jesus was angry because these Pharisees were doing something wicked and evil. And it angered him and saddened him. Jonah saw what God was doing and how he was showing grace and mercy and he didn't think that's fair I'd encourage you to read through stories of anger in the scriptures, whether it's why was, what was, what triggered Cain to be so angry with his brother Abel? What triggered in the heart of King Saul to be angry at David? And here's a fun one. It's, you have to do a little bit of work, but what triggered the anger in Ahithophel? You're thinking, who's Ahithophel? Ahithophel was one of the counselors in David's mighty uh, council. What triggered anger in Ahithophel that he would want to see David die? What triggered anger in the older brother that made him angry with his father when he brought his younger brother back in? And test it. See if you can't see why Anger is this response to the fact that we have perceived, real or imagined, that an injustice has taken place. Maybe like my nephew. Why did he do it? It's not fair. Part of our anger is rooted in the fact that we love justice. But I'd also say, based on what James tells us here, that not all of our justice is truly justice. When we look at James chapter four, verses one and two. James says, what's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires? I might say the passions of the flesh, which wage war within you. You want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and get angry and wage war to take it away from them. James is pointing out that one of the reasons that justice gets skewed is that we end up having a false sense of justice, or I might say a warped sense of injustice. It's like we're in a funhouse of mirrors, and nothing is as it actually is. And so when we see something that we don't like, we assume that we would be righteous to be angry about it. but it may be that we've got these disordered loves, these inordinate desires. We think that we deserve certain types of things. So what kind of emotional response do you have when you don't get what you want? What, what, what swells up in you when you don't get what you want? You might say disappointment. What if you think you deserve that thing? What if you think that it's the right thing to have? or the moral thing, and you don't get what you want. What happens when we start to feel that's not fair, that's not right? What I think James is trying to get us to see is that before anger is a 
behavior disorder or an emotional disorder. It's a worship disorder. We end up loving things wrongly or loving the wrong things. We put too much of a value on me getting this. And if we don't get this, we get angry. And so I'll ask you, why, why are you angry? What, what has happened maybe this morning or this week or in the past decade that has caused you to be angry? Did an injustice take place? Or was the internet just slow? Or was the driver just slow? Did you get angry this morning on your way into work? There was a part of me that was really close to getting angry while I was driving in this morning. There was this small Chevy Blazer pulling what looked like a um, giant steamroller and he could not come up the hills on 501. And I'm thinking, I gotta get to work. What was happening? What, why, why was I getting angry at this driver? Well, I thought he was stupid for trying to pull that stupid thing behind him. And it was stupid because why is he doing it now? Why, why is he stupid that he's driving a Chevy? He should be driving a Ford truck and then he'd have no problem. What am I doing? I'm saying it's not what, what I have perceived is not right. And if I'm able to step back and see for a moment that's stupid. There, there's been no great injustice. He was not doing anything wrong. What had only happened is I had thought that he was doing something wrong. What makes you angry? Is it that your kids are disobeying you and your love for your kids, seeing them that they are actually harming themselves is, is the cause or the root of your anger? Or do you just not like that they are inconveniencing you? Because you had plans for comfort and rest and peace and your kids have robbed that from you. They have taken what is important to you and you don't have it anymore and you think you deserve it. You've worked hard. And now that you don't have it, who becomes the object of your wrath but the person who has taken what you love from you? Or maybe it's not because they're inconveniencing you. Maybe it's because they're embarrassing you. What makes you so angry at your kids when they disobey you at Walmart or Target and they have a meltdown? It's probably because there's a part of you that thinks, you know what, that behavior, if they continue that through their adolescence and through, through adulthood, if they continue to throw these temper tantrums, that is unhealthy for our kids. And we need to be angry at certain behaviors that if allowed to flourish would destroy the things that we love. There might be some righteous anger in senior kids with temper tantrums, but I'm wondering whether or not there's also a kind of sinful anger commingled with that that is angry because we end up being embarrassed and we look at other people and they stare at us and we're wondering what they're thinking. Do they think I'm a bad parent? And what we treasure is the approval of others and any sort of instance that would rob us of the approval of others is something that makes us angry. It's not right. I don't deserve this. It's not fair. And so we're angry at our kids when what we're really angry about is not so much what they've done but because something else has been taken from us. We have a warped view of what the injustices are in the world. And I think we can go one step farther and say that we get angry when our treasures are threatened. Good and evil. When we see a car driving fast down the street with our kids 
in the front yard, it's okay to probably be angry at him because he's, he's threatening something. Or if you see your kids running headfast into the street to grab them, pull them back, and to in some ways reveal righteous anger because what their behavior is doing is threatening something that is of real value. The problem is, like what James says, is that there's oftentimes a kind of disordered love where we think that we have earned certain amounts of respect, that we deserve certain amounts of comfort, in some ways entitled. (laughs) We're entitled to so much stuff. We think that we deserve it, and when we don't get it, we think that an injustice has taken place. What I want us to do to end is to consider how we might fight against this type of anger. And to do so, I, I want to step back and say that our goal or our aim in this is not to simply to repress our anger, to stuff it deep inside of us, maybe like a stoic and say, ah, it doesn't matter. To be indifferent is not the solution. People who are apathetic to a situation, they're not going to get angry because they don't care. They don't maybe love anything. And yet there are times when anger really is the righteous response to some kind of real injustice. Tim Keller says that uh, in its uncorrupted form, anger is an expression of love. Anger is God's righteous response to what would destroy something of value. And so the goal is not just to repress it, try to get rid of it, try to say, I'm never angry. There are times where it would be wrong for you not to be angry. Our aim is not, though, to just release anger. And there's some therapeutic approaches that would say, we just need to find healthy ways to vent your anger. This anger that's boiling up inside of you, you just need to find healthy ways to let off some of that steam. You need to exercise more. Maybe you need to see a therapist and just get some things off your chest. The problem is, is that I'm not sure that that actually deals with the problem of anger because something new is going to start to swell up in you. And I don't know about you, but maybe the more angry you get, the more you release that anger, the more you realize it feels good to let anger out, the more that you're looking forward to finding ways to let anger out again. I think it's one of the problems with what we see happening in our nation today. We find so much virtue in releasing anger in the moral superiority that comes with it that we don't consider the fact that we are doing immense damage to relationships and to our society because we're so angry and want everyone to know. I feel even more virtuous. That's virtue signaling of letting others know how angry I am. It's so destructive. Our aim is not to repress it or release it, but in some ways to reconsider it. And so I want to reconsider anger in light of what we have been using as our theme of we are citizens and ambassadors of a new kingdom. And within this new kingdom, there are some truths, there are facets of the good news that if we believe them would help us in our fight against these passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. The first point about living in our kingdom that I think is helpful for us is that we need to remember that we have a better king. Living in God's kingdom means that we have a better king. I don't know about you. There's a saying that says it's good to be the king. I have not personally found that to be the case. Whenever I say, my kingdom come, my will be done, on earth and in my home, as in my dreams, I'll tell you, no one ends up responding like I'm the king. My coworkers don't respond like I'm the king. 
They don't treat me. They don't serve me. They don't cater to my every whim like a king. They don't read my mind and know exactly what I want whenever I want it. And so when I'm the king of my own kingdom, there are thousands of people who are dissidents in my kingdom who are not serving their king. They are not taking care of their king. And I can find in myself getting angry with people for doing things that they don't need to do because they didn't do what I wanted them to do. And if I'm king, I need to make sure that I control everyone and everything. The problem is, is that when you are the king of your own kingdom, there's always going to be someone or something that is threatening the things that you love. What we need to do is to repent and say, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven when we can remember our citizenship, that we have a better king, we can remember the fact that our king is a much better king than we are. Our king is a generous king. He's a gracious king. We can recount the manifold blessings that our king has bestowed and lavished upon citizens in his kingdom. One of the ways to destroy or uproot anger at its source is to consider not how many wrong things are going, but just how many blessings, how many undeserved blessings we actually have. And we can do that when we remember that we have a better king. The second thing about living in this kingdom as citizens is to remember that we have a better judge. When I try to be judge, I'm a bad judge. And here's why. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know the full story. There are so many details of situations that would make me angry that if I could just have God's view of things and I could see maybe... What what was really going on? I got angry in this case. I got angry with my spouse or I got angry with my kids or I got angry with my coworkers. But if I really just could see the full spectrum of what was happening, maybe I wouldn't be as quick to judge. Maybe I'd be a little bit slower to anger. Maybe I would extend more grace or more understanding or more mercy. I'm a bad judge because I don't actually know the difference between a real injustice and just an injustice that's in my head. But what we do as citizens in our kingdom is that we entrust judgment to God. We entrust that he loves justice more than we do, but he loves it perfectly. That he sees all and knows all and he will punish evildoers. And he will deal with it justly. And when we can let go of trying to be the judge, let, let go of trying to be the, the sole arbiter of being the judge, jury, and executioner, if we can release that into the Lord's hands, we'll find that we don't need to be angry about every single injustice. We can rest. We can have peace knowing that that injustice is going to be taken care of. God is going to deal with it now or in the future. He's going to take care of it through the cross or through the fires of hell. And we can rest that God is not letting injustice simply go unjudged. When I think about anger, I think, I think about what we might need in order to fight against it. And so my big idea that I have at the top of your notes is that our battle against anger is won by treasuring the grace that we've received from God, treasuring the undeserved favor that God has shown us as a better king and trusting in the justice of our better judge if you can wrap your head around all of the manifold good news of great joy that comes along with being a citizen in God's new kingdom, 
I think what that produces is a kind of citizen that is meek, not weak. There are some translations of the Bible that will want to not say meek, but say gentle or say humble. And I think to do so robs some of the beauty of that word. Meek is not weak. In fact, it is just the opposite. The the term to meek something was actually a a phrase that was used by uh, the Greek army. They would go off into the hillside and they would gather the the wildest, the most ferocious, the strongest horses, and they would bring them into camp and they would meek them. They would train them. They would let go of the weak ones. What they wanted is someone who was both strong and restrained. It's the difference between putting a muzzle on a dog and training a dog. Neither dog will bite, but one won't bite because it can't, and one dog won't bite because it won't. It's been trained to obey its master. We see Jesus be the example of a gentle and strong, a meek citizen in his kingdom. In the same passage I looked at two weeks ago in 1 Peter, we see that Jesus did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threatened revenge when he suffered. Pause that for a moment and consider what your response is when someone insults you or when you suffer. Is there not a part of anger that swells up in you that wants to let others pay for what they've done? Jesus didn't retaliate. He didn't threaten revenge. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. The result of people who have seen the grace that they've been given, trust in a God who is just, can be strong but gentle. We don't need to make sure that everyone pays for what they've done. We don't need to store our anger, stew on our anger, or spew our anger on others. So you pray with me in Jesus' name. Father, we turn our face to you because with the broad definition, the broad expression of anger that Jesus exposes to us, we recognize that there's not one of us who's innocent. All of us have fallen short of your standard, fallen short of your glory. And Lord, we want to confess that not all of our anger is like your anger, that it's righteous, but is rooted in things that we desire believe that we deserve, and when we don't have, we get angry. Father, help us to dig up those evil impulses, those lies, those disordered loves, those passions of the flesh that would cause us to grow angry and stew on that anger or spew out that anger on others. Father, I pray that you would make us a people who are meek, who are strong, who won't be walked over, who aren't pushovers when it comes to genuine justice, but who remain fixed and trusting and that your powerful and merciful and gracious and just hand is overseeing this kingdom in ways that we never could. Father, deal with our anger now so that we don't deal with it when we are being judged by it. Help us in Jesus' name.
Amen.